For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. All right, thank you, Rich, for reading that. So this morning we are we're moving over to 1 Corinthians 11 for a sermon. And that's because two weeks ago we had covered the Lord's Last Supper, that Passover meal. And we're going to 1 Corinthians 11 as somewhat of a part two to round out our understanding biblical understanding of communion or the Lord's Supper. And then also with that, just so you know, we're at a place in Mark right now where we're looking towards the end of the book. And at the end of the book, we have the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so what I'm scheduling out is for us to be able to hit the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. So, you know, we're kind of in that ballpark. I didn't count the exact Sundays this morning, but it's somewhere around six Sundays from now. So this gives us some time to round out our understanding of the Lord's Supper and communion in 1 Corinthians, and we'll move back to Mark next week and continue there. So 1 Corinthians 11, but before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for our time here this morning where we can sing to you We can read scripture, we can pray, and now we can gather around your word. We pray that the preaching and teaching of your word this morning will go forth with your clarity. We ask that you would open up the eyes of our hearts so that we could behold your glory and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We thank you for this gathering that you have given to us and the regularity, the scheduling that you have given to us on the Lord's Day to meet together and to express our unity in Christ. And so we ask for your help now as a family as we open up your word and study it together in Jesus' name, amen. So that Passover meal that we covered in Mark was that religious holiday that had been taking place for 1,400 years up until Christ came. It pointed backwards to the exodus that God had brought Israel through. That tenth and final plague was a plague of judgment against Pharaoh. Pharaoh had refused to let God's people go. And so God brought a final plague of judgment. This plague of judgment was that the firstborn in the households would die unless the households in faith went out and killed a lamb and took the blood from that lamb and applied it to the doorposts of their home. That night, the death angel came into Egypt and the death angel saw the blood that was on the doorposts of families and passed over those homes. But those that did not have the blood applied the angel brought death to the firstborn in those families. That night, the text says, there was a great cry in Egypt that went out as folks experienced loss, as they experienced the death of their firstborn. And yet what happened was God used that in Pharaoh's heart 
to literally say, okay, go, get out and go worship your Lord. So for the next 1,400 years, every year, the people of Israel were looking back at that, at that time in their nation's life where they could see God's redemption taking place. Fast forward 1,400 years. Jesus is on the scene. He has been ministering from the north up around Galilee, working his way to the south, and he has purposefully orchestrated his life to arrive in Jerusalem when? At Passover. And so many of the themes of Passover now are fulfilled in Christ. The lamb that was slain, that bore the wrath, is Jesus now. And he is going to die, actually, historians talk to us about the time when the Passover lambs were slain on that holiday. Jesus is going to the cross, and he is going to die when that last Passover lamb is slain in the temple area. Here's Jesus fulfilling that in his own life. And he takes his disciples aside on that Thursday night, gathers them together for a last supper, and works them through the ritual of that meal. That meal had the roasted lamb, it had the bread, and it had the cups of wine. And through the meal, he takes the bread and he breaks it apart, has it handed to his disciples, and then he parts from the script that they would have been used to hearing. Instead of pointing backwards to the redemption that had happened in Egypt 1,400 years later with the bread of affliction that would have come up, he takes the bread, hands it to them, and says, this is my body. And then he takes the cup, which was probably the third cup of wine in that meal, and says, this is the new covenant that is found in my blood. So we move from the Passover meal to Jesus being the final Passover lamb whose life is given as a gift to those who will receive it in faith, God's wrath is passed over those who receive him in faith, and we celebrate Christ as our Savior. And Jesus says, now, there is a new meal that comes out of this. 1 Corinthians 11 calls it the Lord's Supper. It's no longer the Passover meal. This is now the Lord's Supper, where we come together in a meal and celebrate what the Lord has done for us. Now, as we work through 1 Corinthians 11... We're calling this the Lord's Supper. I'll refer to it as communion. And growing up, when we had communion at our service, I'm sure my dad preached on communion, but there are three things that come to my mind or came to my mind as a young boy. When I saw the communion table up front, I knew that represented the Lord's body. That came to mind. Number two, I always wished that there was more grape juice because just a little swallow like that was just a teaser for me. Why not just have like a big glass and slam that thing down and enjoy it that way? And number three, I always knew that when we had communion, the service would go longer. That, that's my memory of that. So young people, if you're thinking the same thing, if you're thinking, yeah, I know this represents Jesus, I wish there was more grape juice, and hold on because this is going to be a longer service, there's more to this than that. This is a means of grace that God has given to us. It's his graciousness. It's not saving grace. It's, it's benefits that God gives to us in our walk with him. 
And as we come to this table, this table has many elements or many reminders for us, but I'd like to walk through three of those for us. We're calling them means of grace because God gives us kindness when we come to this table. It's a reminder of what he's done, not saving us through this table, but really encouraging us through what he's done for us in Christ. So what are these means of grace that God has given to us as we come to this table? The first one is this, Christian unity in Christ. When we come to this table, we are reminded of our Christian unity, of our collective Christian unity in Christ. Now, five times in this chapter here, you see Paul saying that when you come together, when you come together, in verse 17, he says, when you come together. In verse 18, he says, when you come together as a church. In verse 20, he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating, and he's rebuking them there. In verse 33, you look down and you can see, when, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And then in verse 34, when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So it's obvious that Paul is placing a value on their coming together, communion being an act in which they are united in. The only problem is that for the Corinthians, when they were coming together to meet, they were not actually fully coming together and experiencing Christian unity. And this comes as no surprise because throughout the book of Corinthians, we are told that there are all kinds of divisions that are happening within the body. In chapter one, he uses this word that there are divisions among you. I hear that there are divisions among you. Some of you are saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, I am of Christ. Chapter three, he brings it up again and says, there's divisions among you. I hear that there's jealousy and strife that's taking place among you. Chapter six, he could look at this body of believers and he knew that some were slapping lawsuits on others. It'd be kind of strange if somebody over here was carrying out a lawsuit on somebody over here. This is, this is not the expression of unity. And then in chapter eight, he's dealing with that theme where folks are coming together and they're having problems about whether or not that meat should actually be eaten because it was offered to idols. And he knows that there's, there's wedges that are happening in the body of Christ. And yet, he's saying that this meal ought to be an expression of Christian unity among the brothers and sisters that are gathered in that local church in Corinth. But before we get there, what drives the wedges? If there's a wedge that's coming down into the body of Christ, what's the hammer that's pounding it down and creating the separation? Well, just very understandably, it's going to be selfishness. Look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 11. He says, when you come together, they're coming together for this meal, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. All right, so what's going on here? Scholars tell us that the early church often had meals together, full meals together. In the book of Jude, you have this phrase that talks about love feasts, or you've heard the phrase maybe agape meals, where folks would come together and there would be a full meal that the church would share together. And at the end of that meal, there would be a celebration or a remembrance of the Lord's Supper with the bread and the wine. The church in Corinth 
had taken these meals, these feasts, and they had gone way too far with them. Some would show up early to the meals and eat all of the good food. So maybe you had wealthy people who could bring roasted lamb, and they would say, we would bring the meat. And so they had the meat that was there on the tables. And then poorer people, we'll come, but uh, we'll bring the bread. So let's meet together at five o'clock for our love feast, our evening service, our communion tonight. They come together at five o'clock and the poor people show up with their bread. But when they show up, they see that the wealthy people are rubbing their stomachs with fullness, burping. And not only that, but they're actually slurring their speech. They've taken all the good food and woofed it down. And Paul says, you've eaten before everybody's arrived. And not only that, but you're drunk. I mean, can you imagine on our Sunday night that we share a meal in the uh, gym, gymnasium, if you were to walk in there and you were to see the rows of crock pots that are there and you walk up to it and you see people sitting at the tables pushed back with empty bowls, rubbing their stomachs and just slurring their speeches with one another. And you walk up to the crock pots and you can see that there's nothing left but a bunch of crustiness around the edges because the potato soup is dried up. And you'd be like, well, what kind of fellowship is this setting? And then we're supposed to have communion after that? And so Paul is hearing about this kind of scenario taking place in this local body of Christ that is supposed to be unified as brothers and sisters. So it gets so crazy that when you go over to verse 34, Paul says this, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Now, it's very possible that Paul is basically canceling the potlucks here. (laughs) Serious. Serious, because some people are showing up early, eating it, and he's like, no, this has got to stop. We're missing the point of coming together and experiencing the Lord's Supper with the bread and the cup. And because you can't handle it, hey, if you're hungry, eat your main meal at home. So that when you come together, you are eating what matters most now. You're eating the bread that symbolizes the body of Christ and drinking the cup that represents the blood in the new covenant. So there's selfishness that's going on here. Their self-focused behavior was taking away from the actual practice of their Christian unity. The expression of being a family is ruined. And there's a void here of togetherness. Now, there's always going to be a void of Christian unity when we want our own way with one another. Where does our togetherness for the Lord's Supper begin? Well, it begins by understanding these elements. And first, what Paul does is he recounts Jesus' words. And you can see in verse 24, Jesus says, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So very briefly, what I want you to understand with where we're going here right now is that this bread that we're going to partake of in a few minutes is going to be an expression of our Christian unity. Those who partake in the bread are going to have to know in their minds that I am a partaker of this bread and it shares or expresses Christian unity. And you might say, well, all it says is take, this is my body, which is for you. Where is the Christian unity part in the bread? We'll go back to chapter 10 in your Bibles and look at verse 14. Chapter 10 is like the little brother to chapter 11. 
There's teachings on communion in chapter 10 that we often neglect, and then Paul comes back to it in chapter 11. But look what he says in chapter 10, verse 14. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Now, here's what I want you to see. The bread that we break Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And notice what he says about the bread. Because there is one bread, which relates to our Savior, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So what Paul is saying, when we come together and partake of this bread, As a Christian family, this bread that represents Jesus Christ, we are saying we belong to the one Savior. And because we belong to the one Savior, he says we have participation. That word is koinonia or fellowship. We have togetherness with one another. And so when you partake of this bread here in a few moments, one of the Christian benefits, one of the means of grace that God gives to you through this is, I am of the Savior. And because I am of the Savior, because I am in the body of Christ, spiritually speaking, I know that there are other members who are in the body of Christ. And what Paul says is that any wedge that comes down in the body of Christ and is so-called separating it needs to be removed. And in our thinking, we need to recognize that our highest unity, our togetherness, is expressed because we are one in the Savior. And not only does he stop there with the bread, but he moves on in chapter 11, verse 25, with the cup. What does the cup express? He says in verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What is this new covenant that he is talking about? What's the significance here? That goes all the way back to our Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. What does Jeremiah 31, verse 33 say? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And here's what I want you to see. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Not many peoples, but my people. So when we take the cup of the new covenant, which represents the new covenant, We are recognizing that we are in relationship with God. And here's a question. Is God divided among his people? He's not. Are his people divided among him? They are not. So Paul's argument is that the divisions among God's people in the church should be filled or corrected with the understanding that once we are saved by Christ, we are placed into this spiritual body, we are one in Christ, and we are in relationship with him. Now, when you think about this, you can ask yourself the question, did I contribute anything to this? Did I contribute anything to being placed into the body of Christ and God bringing us into this family? And the answer is no. I don't don't do anything of that. 
I receive that by faith, and God is the one who plunges me into the body of Christ and makes me one with other fellow believers. And yet, what Paul does is he says, okay, there is the divine sovereignty that happens, but now there is a level of responsibility that you and I have to carry out this oneness with one another. Notice where he goes in verses 27 and following. Verse 27 of chapter 11 Paul says this, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. What does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Well, if you just keep the context, the context of this passage is saying that people are coming together and they're abusing the Lord's Supper out of their own selfishness. They're expressing selfishness in the way that they're coming together. And that is certainly not a worthy manner of participating in communion. And so Paul goes on to say in the following verse, verse 28, Now let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. So he's calling us to see whether or not our lives are living out our salvation in a worthy manner or an unworthy manner. In other words, are there any divisions? Are there any schisms? Are there any fractions or factions that are happening among me and my fellow believers in Christ because of my selfishness? And so he says, now examine yourself. You think about going to the doctor's office. That doctor gets very personal in the examination. It goes deep, has to see everything that's going on. And in the same way, when we come to this table this morning, we don't come just kind of flippantly or lighthearted. God would have us come to this table and partake of it in a worthy manner. And we do this by examining our hearts, our lives, our actions. Have I been living in a manner that is consistent with God's will? And the context here would have us, at least on the first concentric circle of application, think about it in terms of our relationship with our fellow believers. Because that's what's going on in chapter 11. My dad is a pastor preacher. And one of the memories that I have during the communion services, and maybe you would have this from communion services, I don't know that we emphasize it too much now, but maybe we should. I remember him standing in front of the table and him saying something along these lines. If you know that there is something between you and another brother or sister in Christ, this meal urges you to take care of that. And it comes in the spirit of 1 Corinthians 11. If there's divisions that are happening, if there are schisms and factions and divisions that are happening, God would have us take care of that. And one way that we take care of that now in our human responsibility is to come under the microscope of examination and ask God, will you convict me about sin? Because what's highest and of most importance here in this meal is the expression of unity among our brothers and sisters. Why? Because this body that represents Christ his body was given for us so that we might be one in Christ. So let me just give you some thoughts. There is sin that takes up residence in our hearts 
and in our lives. Wouldn't it be awesome if we trusted God and his word and adhered to his word enough to say, okay, I feel the tension that is between me and a brother or sister. There might be something that's going on between you and another person. You feel the tension that's there. And it might not be something that is necessarily sinful. For example, I didn't get invited to that person's house for the Super Bowl. Stink. They don't like me. And on your own heart, that has caused a wedge. You wouldn't need to go over to that other person and say, you know what, I've been holding resentment against you because you didn't invite me over to your house last Sunday night. And they're like, I never knew that was going on. That's something that you would deal with. You would examine your heart. You would see that anger or that bitterness that you have towards somebody else in your heart. And you say, God, the way that I have been acting or thinking or talking about in reference to that other person, I see it. It's sin. But maybe there's something else that actually is known and it is present and it is causing like two opposite magnets, these two people to repel from one another. And the Bible would say, examine yourself. Don't partake of this in an unworthy manner. Deal with it. Confess it. And now walk in unity. Don't show up to the meal with divisions that are taking place. And so God would have us in Christian maturity go to that person and say, hey, you know what? We might not agree on all this. But here's something that's awesome. I'm your brother. You're my brother. I'm your brother, you're my sister. And can we look at this and say, okay, we're going to put this on the shelf and we're going to agree to disagree about this, and yet we're going to have the maturity to be Christians, to be in the body together, to be united in Christ with one another. That's the attitude or spirit that should be taking place in a room like this when we come together to be of one body because we are in Christ. Don't partake of it in an unworthy manner. Examine yourselves. So there is this, there is this practice that, that happens of examining ourselves and confession of sin that ought to be taking place between our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as I thought about this, I thought, for me, oftentimes what happens as I am partaking of the bread and the cup down here is I'm asking God, God, please show me areas of sin in my own life that I should be confessing to you right now. And oftentimes what he does is he brings to mind sins that have not taken place so much within this body of Christ but sins that have taken place at home. You see, I am married to a sister in Christ. I'm married to a daughter of Christ. And I think that it is wise for us as Christians, as married couples, to recognize my Christianity and my unity is not just tied to the people whom I gather together with on Sundays. There is an aspect of Christian unity that takes place in the home. 
And I think, how many marriages would be helped by this reality, this truth, that I'm not just married to a wife, I'm not just married to a husband, I'm married to a daughter of Christ, I'm married to a sister in Christ. And I have a responsibility from God to examine myself and see what kind of sinful thoughts or sinful words or sinful behaviors I have acted out even in my Monday through Saturday life as well. And what God does in my heart here so many times is he'll bring to mind the words or the ways that I've thought or the things that I've acted out towards Chris, like not as my wife, but as a daughter of Christ. And so many marriages would be helped by this thought that I have an obligation, yes, to my wife, but I have an obligation because she is a daughter of Christ. She's my sister in Christ. Here we come from this table and just one of the tangible practices, one of the means of grace that God gives to us is to push us, not towards ourselves, but to push us away from sin and towards confession so that the body of Christ can come together in unity. That's benefit number one. Benefit number two, or means of grace number two, is the assurance of salvation in Christ. The assurance of salvation in Christ. I won't spend as much time on the second remaining points, young people, because you're thinking, wow, this is going to get really long, and we still have communion to follow. But what do we mean by assurance of salvation in Christ? When it comes to assurance of salvation, one of the pitfalls that we fall into is that the focus of our assurance tends to shift from Christ to ourselves. By that I mean that we lose sight of the anchor of our salvation and we place our faith in the quantity, the quality, or the feeling of our faith. Let me give you an example. If you're rappelling off the side of a cliff, the rope that you're attached to is somewhere between a quarter inch to a half inch in thickness. Let's say you're going off the cliff and you're in the middle of this cliff and all of a sudden you're struck by fear. And you say to yourself, I might fall right now. How do I know I'm safe? And your eyes immediately get glued to that rope and you start examining that rope. This rope is only about a quarter inch thick. It's only a half inch thick. Is this rope going to hold me? And in all actuality, what your focus ought to be on is where is that rope anchored to up on top of the cliff? Has it been anchored into a pile of sand that's flimsy Or has it been anchored to a 10-ton boulder rock that won't budge or move, that will anchor you in? So many times what happens when it comes to our assurance of faith is that we look at our faith rather than looking at the object of our faith that our faith is anchored to. You come away from a Christian service, you had good worship, and you're all hyped up, and you're feeling like your faith is strong. Therefore, I must be saved. I feel assured of my salvation. You get to Wednesday, and that faith just seems a little weaker, a little starved. You get to Friday or Saturday night, and you look back over the week, and you're like, man, I didn't commune with the Lord like I wanted to, and my faith just feels like it's paper thin. And what happens is you start focusing on your faith 
rather than the object of your faith, that is Christ. And in communion, what Jesus does is he says, this is my body, which is for you. This is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood that was shed for you. And he's not turning us to ourselves. He's not turning us to the thickness of our faith. He's turning us to the anchor of our faith, and that is Christ himself. D.A. Carson has an interesting way of talking about this as it relates to the Passover, the Exodus time. He says, think about two Hebrews, two Jews then. They know that the plague of judgment is coming. And so one goes out and slays a lamb and takes the blood and puts it on the doorposts of his home. And he goes in that night, eats the meal, and sits there in confident expectation, knowing that the blood is on the doorpost, and he is eager for God to do what he's going to do. The next person takes the lamb and takes a shaky knife and cuts the lamb, slays the lamb, takes a a brush, a shaky brush, and starts going through the process of applying the blood on the doorpost, and then goes into the house that night and just thinks to himself, did I do this right? Did I choose the right lamb? Did I apply enough blood to the doorpost? Did I do everything the way that God wanted me to do it? Well, on that night, which one of these two men are saved? Both of them are. Why? Because it wasn't in like the thickness of their faith. What God was looking for was the blood that was applied to the doorpost. And for us as Christians, we come to this meal and you see in verse 24, Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Our focus now is on Jesus himself. He is our savior. And we come to this table and we can say, it's not of me. What is my faith anchored to? It's anchored to Jesus. So Thomas Doolittle, a couple of quotes from some Puritan preachers. Thomas Doolittle, he says this. Draw near unto this table of the Lord and have a share of these gospel benefits and be assured of them. I am persuaded that if you would go unto this ordinance, you would in time hear God speaking peace and comfort to your soul. When I as a believer apprehend the truth of my faith in Christ, love for God and hatred of sin, and the promise that God has made to such in Christ. So as surely as I ate the bread and drank the wine, so sure has God pardoned my sins and will save my soul. Another Puritan preacher, Richard Vines, he says this, communion is needful for relief of our doubts fears, and waverings. For this is the great question of anxiety which troubles the soul. Are my sins pardoned? Are my sins blotted out? God has instituted this sacrament to resolve this question. And it's found in what this represents in Jesus himself. So God has given us this ordinance It's a means of grace that we would express our Christian unity. It's a means of grace where we partake of these elements and we can be reminded, my faith is in Jesus alone, my Savior. All right, third and last significance of the Lord's Supper is this. The Lord's Supper gives us a future expectation of Christ's return. 
a future expectation of Christ's return. Verse 25, Jesus says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he shares this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus, when he was here, celebrated last supper, he died, rose again. And then he ascended into heaven. Now, Jesus says that he's going to return. And the Bible describes him returning in multiple genres, if you will. One of the genres is that he is going to return like a groom. So you read about the parable of the virgins on the night where they didn't keep their oil. And he's talking about that night where the groom was ready. In Ephesians 5, we're talking about husbands loving your wives. And Paul says, it's like Christ loving the church so that he might present the church to himself as a bride in splendor, spotless. We hear about Christ as a groom. And in communion, we're reminded that the one whom we are united to, the one whom we are married to, he's coming back for us. So here's what I'd like for us to do. Just close this service by looking at Revelation 19 for a few minutes. Revelation 19. This theme of Jesus as a groom continues here. Revelation 19, verses 6 and following. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's the theme of Christ as a groom and inviting us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I've got a sister who is 14 years younger than me. Now, what do you think my dad gave to me and my brothers for our wedding reception? I don't even remember what he did for us. I think it was pretty flimsy. He didn't have that much at the time to give to us. But here's the baby sister, the one who gets everything. <laughs> everything. She gets married, and what does dad do for her? He rents out a huge room. I can't remember if it was at a hotel or some sort of center. He catered in this meal with this chef who is well-known in Minneapolis and, and paid for the meal. There was music that was there. It was a good old time. There was a fountain outside, and I think our kids ended up in the fountain. It was a, a wonderful time of celebrating this union between my sister and her now husband. There was good food that was there. There were great desserts there. 
when we come together for weddings, you know, some weddings are opulent. And you step into that and you see all the decor that's going on and you see the cakes and you see maybe a full course meal that's there. It's a feast. And what Jesus is saying is that there is nothing that will compare to the celebration and the joy of that wedding feast for when he returns for us, his bride. The day of Christ fully being united to his bride, the church, to us, is coming. And the day in which Christ will again be with us and drink of the fruit of the vine that he said. He said, I'm going to come and I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until that day. He's going to partake in a meal because we will be united with him forever and ever. And there's going to be great joy and great celebration that we will forever be with the Lord. And folks, there's a lot of junk that's happening right now. And one of the means of grace that God gives to us in communion is for us to come to this table and say, but it's not always going to be this way. Christ is going to return. So as we approach this meal, we enjoy and appreciate God's means of grace to us. Folks, Let's remember that as we're partaking of this meal, we are expressing Christian unity in Christ. And we're not going to let something eclipse be greater than what Christ did for us. Christ's sacrifice is of greatest value to us. And so we find our togetherness in him. We come to this meal and we see and we remember the promises of the Lord over and over again. Our assurance of salvation is here for us to enjoy And lastly, we enjoy the promise that Christ is coming back. We look backwards to what he has done, and we look forward to what he will soon do. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time where we can tangibly hold these elements in our hands We can remember what you have done for us. We can have things put in perspective that if there are tensions between us and a fellow brother or fellow sister, we can know that they do not belong on the top shelf. The unity that we have in Christ actually preserves us from falling apart because of what you have done for us in Christ. We're thankful for what this meal represents, even in terms of the future meal that we will share with you, where you will return and we will enjoy eternity with you forever. And now we want to examine ourselves. Or do we want to approach you in obedience? And so we ask that as we come to this meal together, that you would show us our sin to repent of and then our Savior to run to. Help us during this time to appreciate you all the more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've walked through communion in our service. Let me just say a couple of other things that are important for us. Who is communion for? You can tell it's for the body of Christ. It's for those who believe in what these elements represent. If you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, it would be right for you just to pass these along. This is not a meal then for you to partake in. If you are 
digging your heels in and saying no to Christ. No, I will not do that. No, I will not do that. Don't partake of this in an unworthy manner. The rest of chapter 11, there's a warning. There's a warning of judgment. And so to partake of this meal in an unworthy manner is to welcome God's judgment on your life. You would do well to pray, God, please break my heart of pride. I don't want to partake of these elements in pride with a stiff arm or a stiff heart against you. But as you receive these elements, then, it's time for us to examine our hearts. Ask God to point out sin. And where he points out sin, confess that sin to God. And where he points out sin, thank God for what he's done for us in Christ, covering us for that sin. And then you turn your attention to what God has done for us, and you can praise him and thank him for who Jesus is. As a family, then, a family in Christ, we'll partake of these elements together. Don't go ahead and eat it before the other person does. And as we partake of them, we can know that we are one family coming together in one spiritual body. So during this time, it's a time of reflection, and then it's a time of praise. And we'll come back together and enjoy these elements. Men, if you'll please come now. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the words that we studied just a moment ago. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And brothers and sisters, family, those of us who are united in Christ together, not divided and I don't sense any big wedge if you're a visitor and wondering, is there a subtle message here? No, it's just the importance of who we are right now. Brothers and sisters, family in Christ, here's what we do. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this now in remembrance. And in the same way also, he took the cup. The cup which represents the new covenant, this new relationship that God will have with his people. It's him whom we're trusting in right now as we handle this element, not the size of our faith, but the object of our faith is Christ. And he took this cup and he says, this cup, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.